from an executive standpoint, I think when when the digital analytics, web analytics, I guess at the time revolution came around and we made this monumental shift from we have to collect and store and maintain all of these servers so we can have all this data to we're going to pay a company to do that for us. I think expectations shot through the roof that if I'm going to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to Omniture to do this for me, my expectation is the data is going to be perfect. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. So what's going on? What's new with you? Uh, what's the word? I'm feeling I'm feeling ready for some some downtime. It's a it's a good time. I don't I don't know about you, but lots of the lots of the companies that I'm working with are starting to kind of wind things down. They have some tighter um, grips on release cycles around holiday time, and people are starting to. Uh, plan their vacation so it's nice it's it's kind of slowed a little bit and i think it's uh it's good to uh appreciate that time when you get it it's not always like that yeah Uh, there's a couple clients that things are slowing down a lot of people start are starting to head out of the office at some point next week yeah um and yeah it's like it's looking at the list they're like is it done yet can it be done the next couple days if not let's just start putting it in the plans for, for January. Yeah. I have a couple of clients who are in code freeze one who is being very, very strict this year. Um, in years past, they would you know have a code freeze, but then they would be flexible and you would need major justification if something published this year, like there needs to be significant justification for something to be published. Yeah. To the point of business will lose $4 million if we either don't remove this or if we don't add this kind of thing. Um, And there were, there were a couple of people that they, it was funny with them this year, the requests that came in after code free started. So code free started like November 3rd and leading up to it, things were quiet. Then all of a sudden code free starts. And then that's when several requests came in and we have them queued up, but we've only been able to get approval on one. Um, we've only been able to get approval on one and everything else is sitting in the queue and p- some people are stamping their feet and we're like, there, there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. We've, we've put it before the control board. The control board said, no, it wasn't worth the risk and it's going to be January. Yeah, no, understood. And I'm looking at the calendar and I think, you know, some years the, the calendar doesn't line up great. This looks, this looks like a year where the calendar really lines up nicely because you could essentially mark, the 20th as your last day of the year Mm -hmm. Uh, because you know the next week you're getting you got monday and then christmas eve is tuesday but not only that it kind of stretches where new year's day is on the first to the following wednesday so really it lines up nicely where you can take off the 20th and not come back till the 6th of january Mm -hmm. yeah our, our shutdown starts after the 23rd 
but more or less I'm telling people I'm done after next Friday. Yeah. So I can have a nice quiet Monday, the 23rd. Yeah. Um, either de- you know, the goal is not to deal with anything left over. It's really just to make sure everything is in a state where I can walk away for almost two weeks and not have to like, I know where I'm starting at when I come back. Yeah. This is going to be really bad to admit, but those were some of my favorite days when I was in the office. I, I remember being back at Omniture and everybody would be off like the, a couple days before Christmas Eve. And there was a group of us that just stayed in the office and we ordered pizza and went mm-hmm. in the game room for about six hours and mm-hmm. just played land games. It was the best. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that. Um, and not to get too off topic before we even get on topic, but uh, what what are your thoughts on the uh, the Astros? With, um, this, with this whole, uh, what were they doing? Knocking or caught or something? To, to they, 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 they were stealing signs. Is what yeah, they, they were stealing doing. signs with a with a video feed, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. They they were stealing signs um, from from the other team and. You know, not not going to lie. Like, I mean, I was happy with to see the Astros Astros win, but yeah. I, I would be quite the hypocrite if I didn't go after them like I've gone after the New England Patriots for mm. the whole Spygate thing back in 04. Mm-hmm. Because that's when the Eagles lost. And they just got in trouble again. They just got in trouble again. But the the first Spygate happened when I can't remember what Super Bowl number it was, but it was in 04 when the Eagles played the Patriots and lost the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And then you come to find out that, you know, they were recording the Eagles practices there. There was a level of spying going on. So Mm -hmm. I think I'd be quite hypocritical if, (laughs) if, if if I kind of gave the Astros a pass on it. So it's not cool. You know, know, every, everyone tries to find a competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, but at some point you do cross the line and when you're, when you're stealing signs, especially with baseball, right? Like baseball mm-hmm. is annoying to the point of having unwritten rules. I mean, and this is a written, probably a written rule, right? But baseball is a, if you flip your bat too hard, people get pissed off, mm-hmm. you know? So it just is, is a little odd to me that a, a sport like baseball that has these kind of ethics so deep in the culture would even tempt something like this. Mm-hmm. But when there's money on the line, um, yeah. having considered going into professional sports when I was in college, the one thing you learn is the overwhelming majority of professional sports teams do not make money unless you're yeah. in the playoffs. And even sometimes yeah. if you're just getting into the playoffs, you just break even. Um, you're losing, you know, you're, you're losing money if you are not competing for a playoff spot. So you've got a crap ton of money on the line. And like we've talked about before, when money comes in, people will compromise those ethics. Yeah, no, for sure. And here's the thing with baseball. I, I, I love a little bit of swagger. You know, there's unwritten rules of like, don't show up the pitcher. Don't, 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 don't don't stare at the home run. (laughs) Um, you know, don't, don't be, don't be arrogant about it. Like don't walk down the first baseline. Like, but you know, having a little bit of swagger after you hit the ball, a little bad flip, I don't care. Is it is it Brian McCain? Is he a catcher? Uh, Brian McCann. Brian uh, McCann. So there's the he 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 he's like the 
he's the unelected general of keeping everyone in line when it comes to those type of things. I remember, and I can't remember who the kid was, rookie year, hits mm-hmm. his first home run ever. And he did. He watched it a little bit. But I think he was in awe of the situation of where he was. He was, I think, a 19 or 20-year-old kid, hits a home run. And McCann stands there and blocks the baseline to home plate. And, and mouths off, mouse off to him, causes a bench-clearing brawl. I'm like, give the kid a break. Let him stare yeah. at it a little bit, you jerk. Well, it was great. The beginning of the season last year for the Phillies, one of the opening series, it may have been even the opening series, was against the Mets. And the Phillies and Mets have a history, just like any Philadelphia sports team and New York sports team. But it was a testy game. The Phillies were up, and they they started throwing at Reese Hoskins' head. So Reese Hoskins is the, the star first baseman, starts throwing at his head. And listen, I'm a pitcher, you know, or not I'm a pitcher, but I'm okay with a pitcher throwing at a guy, but you throw at the hip. You know, you mm-hmm. don't throw at the head. You don't throw at the torso. You throw at the hip uh, because you're going to minimize injury and you can still send a message. Um, he starts throwing it at his head. And I can't remember if it was that game or the very next night, Hoskins cranks a home run late in the game and proceeds to do a jog. Around the bases. (laughs) And then later in the year, uh, Bryce Harper cranks a home run and sprints around. So the next day on all the sports channels, they're comparing the two. And it took Hoskins more than twice as long as Harper to get around the bases (laughs) because they were, you know, he was showing them up like, you're going to throw up my head. I'm going to to do that to you. Right. Um, and then in the hockey world last weekend, there was a really testy game against the Flyers and the Senators. And the Senators tied it up. And then 10 seconds later, the Flyers took the lead again. And it this had come after some dirty hits earlier in the game. And one of the players, after he scores the goal, he's skating by the visitor's bench and he's mouthing off to me. <laughs> and, you know, they ask him after the game, what'd you say? I, I forget what I said. <laughs> Oh, that's so, awesome well for the for those just t- turning in uh welcome to 33 tangent sports talks radio mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we're totally in vacation mode already uh, yeah we are <laughs> and oh yeah chocolate ice cream cone nice <laughs> he's hiding hey <laughs> You have to come over here to get on camera. Here. <laughs> you can see the top of his head. Here you go. So uh, we're talking data quality, data yeah. accurate. What are we talking? So, Other than sports talk radio, which is which is fun. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to the sports later on. Um, I, I This is something that's come up. Um, I don't want to say it comes up often, but it comes up from time to time. Is people seem to get paralyzed when they realize their data is not perfect. And I'm not talking about, say, your financial tool of record. I'm talking about web data, sometimes even CRM. There there may be some imperfections. Now, when I say not perfect, I am not referring to major errors, major data gaps. um, You know, revenue is off 50%. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that there's some slight imperfections, but overall... You can say with say it's ninety seven percent accurate. 
you know, if, if you're looking at, say, comparing revenue numbers in your web analytics data compared to your financial tool of record, you're not going to have stuff such as cancellations or returns, but still you have something that provides a level of direction. Um, how often have you seen something like that where someone comes in, they realize the data isn't perfect and they cannot move forward with actually using it and get stuck in this pattern of trying to make it perfect instead of using what they have, which could provide them some kind of direction on the health of the business. A lot. Okay. You've seen and it quite I, frequently then. Yeah. I've seen it frequently and I've seen this back to my first job as a consultant, 2004 ish, 2004. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean it, and Man, it might be uh, interesting to get Evan back on and address this from a uh, psycho psychological perspective, because I've always wondered, like, what's the reasoning behind that? There, there's got to be some kind of psychological reason on on why that happens. And I, I'll, I'll tell you that I, I tend to see it twofold. Um, my first exposure to this was back in 2004, my first consulting gig at, at Omniture, and um, we faced the dreaded but orders in, in Omniture don't match orders in our backend database. So we can't use it. You know, I face this from a lot of customers, but the one that um, is most ingrained in my head is this auto parts company. Um, I think they eventually ended up canceling or getting out of their Omniture contract because they thought the platform was worthless because the numbers wouldn't add up. And I probably spent, and not just me alone, like lots of other people at Omniture, um, spent three or four months with them trying to uh, address the issue, both at a technical level and just at a strategic level, understanding it. And I will tell you that we had four months of data since they we, we had them deployed um, where their orders were consistently 3% under what they were tracking in their transactional database consistently month over month, 3%, and it wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was from the executive level. This wasn't like an analyst or an implementer that was, that was throwing the, the fit. This was at the executive level saying, you know, we made this investment in, in this platform. It has to match exactly, or the platform is worthless. And, you know, looking back on it now, Man, we would if we we would have we have clients that would probably rejoice if they could get consistently three percent difference. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's fairly tight at that point. Um, so you know I I've seen that several times where it comes at the executive level. You know, data is not perfect, data is incomplete. The platform sucks. We can't use it. I've also seen it, and I think it's a different mentality from analysts who say you know the data is incomplete. Oftentimes that's what I hear. It's like I don't have all the data I need. Or let's say we had an outage at some point in time, and because of that outage, we can't do an analysis. And they throw their hands up and they say, "Well, until this is perfect, I can't, I can't do my job." Uh, and to them, I've always said, "Well, you might as well look for a new line of work because I've never seen a data set that's perfect ever, and I don't think you ever will. Data is imperfect, and it always will be." Um, and to your point, that's not to say we shouldn't focus on getting as clean of data from a data collection standpoint as we can. And I think it's important to talk about the differences between traditional analysis and more digital um, an analysis, because I think there is a difference. For one, there's a mindset difference. Those of us that come from a more traditional analysis that, you know, I, I grew up cutting my teeth doing SQL queries against big databases 
that's where I learned my analysis skills. And I knew going into it that I was going to spend 70 to 80% of my time cleaning and organizing data. I just, that's what I expected. Um, analysts that grew up in the digital age don't have that expectation. They have the expectation that I pull up the data, it's ready to go and I go. And, you know, in, in, in part they're, they're, they're correct. Right. And we may have talked about this on previous episodes, but it's, it's one of the reasons why an investment in an Adobe Analytics or a Google Analytics or any other platform that pre-processes the data for you is so valuable. Because as an analyst, it's, it is, it's taking a big bite out of that 70 to 80% of time where you would organize and munge and clean and prepare the data so you could finally do analysis. So on one hand, they're right, you know, that a lot of that should be taken off my plate if I purchase um, an enterprise level digital analytics platform. But I think they've taken that notion a bit too far and said, and unless it's 100%, I can't use it. And that's where I think there's a disconnect be between people that have you know, grew grown up in the digital age and those that have um, experience prior to that, where you know, we just expect that we're going to have to spend time cleaning and, and, they, and those that, in the, that grew up in the digital age don't. And I think it's a lesson that they need to learn and accept that their data is never going to be perfect. And they need to come up with a threshold to say a certain percentage of my time as an analyst will be in cleaning and preparing the data. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you mentioned something that I want to uh, hone in on for, for a few minutes. So you, you talked about like from with the, the auto parts dealer that you were dealing with, it was coming from the executive level. Um, I want to get into those actually using the data, but with it coming from the executive level, what do you think tainted their, their mindset that this is, this must be absolutely perfect and match, you know, down to the decimal to, to other systems. Misset expectations. Was it on the vendor's part? Could it have been some, you know, I, I mean, I think across the board, um, and I don't necessarily think that it's a monetary investment. Again, you know, if, if these people are coming from the background of actually housing. So when I first got into analytics, uh, I was doing marketing analytics. We had a room in the office that was all of our servers. And mm -hmm. it was many, many racks of servers that was were our databases. And that's what we did analysis against. So, you know, not only did we have to have the platforms, um, and so we were an Oracle shop. Not only did, did I as an analyst have to have software on my machine to interact with the Oracle database, we had to have a whole team that up kept a room full of servers that held like that just, we don't think about that today, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's all off premise. It's all, you know, it's all SaaS based. Um, and so I totally forgot where I was going. Um, but um, from an executive standpoint, I think, when when the digital analytics web analytics i guess at the time revolution came around and we made this monumental shift from we have to collect and store and maintain all of these servers so we can have all this data to we're going to pay a company to do that for us i think expectations shot through the roof that if i'm going to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to omniture to do this for me my expectation is the data is going to be perfect and I think it's an absolutely misset expectation, but I, I I believe that's what happened. That, mm -hmm. you know, again, the shift in, we were doing it and we were having to be responsible for it. And by the way, they weren't doing it perfect, you know, but because we're going to pay someone else, we're going to hold them to a higher standard. And I think that's where the breakdown occurred. Do you think it was a fair expectation? No. 
No, absolutely not. Again, again, when I was on the marketing analytics side and we were doing everything in-house and running our own databases, the data was far from perfect. It was messy. But again, going from the, well, we're going to give ourselves a pass to when you go ahead and pay someone else to do it, you hold them, I think, just naturally to a higher expectation. You know, just like you, if like you're doing a project around the house and it's like, yeah, okay, my patch on the drywall wasn't great. But if I hire an expert to come in and do it, I ex- I'm going to hold them to a much higher standard. And so, mm-hmm. you know, sure, part of it is is fair, but the expectation of it being perfect I think is you're never going to be happy. Like it's just an unrealistic expectation. So sure, hold them to a higher standard because this is what they do and this is what their expertise um, are. But you also have to be realistic in what you can actually achieve. If your goal is perfection, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to get there. As hard as you try, you're never going to get there. Now, from the perspective of those actually using the tool, you would assume then that they would have a more realistic expectation around it. So that being said, when you've seen times where people have fallen into this state, what what do you think are some of the common drivers? Lack of experience. I mean, I think that that's the the big one um, is that again, their first exposure to being an analyst is being a digital analyst and not being exposed to traditional analysis techniques of cleaning and preparing data. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, a big part of that is just lack of experience, either through education or through on the job being exposed to this is really what analysis is. Um, and, and again, I think the vendors probably have a little bit of blame in that uh, because as a vendor, you want to make it seem as simple as possible, right? And you remember back to the whole magic tag days. Slap this tag on your website, it collects data, and all of a sudden you can just do analysis at the snap of a finger. And so I think, you know, part of the blame is on the vendors in making it sound easier than it is. Analysis is really, really hard. Um, the digital analytics tools that we have on the landscape today, both in their ability to pre-process the data and put really, really nice tools in front of you. So, you know, analysis workspace from Adobe is just fantastic. Data Studio from Google makes it really nice to put together very, very um, beautiful interactive dashboards. Um, in that aspect, it's easier, but it doesn't make the the work of actually being an, uh, an analyst any easier and that you still have to go through all the steps. And, and again, I just think it's just lack of experience for those where their first entry point was digital, where they were never exposed to it. They were never exposed to it from a vendor standpoint because they didn't want to tell that story. And they didn't have a mentor um, in there to say, you know, I know that this is what you're hearing. Let me tell you what it really takes to be an analyst. I was going to go down another thread, but go ahead. I don't want no, to get no, no, too, okay. too rambling. No, and I think that the other part of it is, is we haven't been clear on roles and what we mean when we say analyst. I think, Interesting. Um, okay. yeah, I think all too often we're calling people analysts that are data distributors. Um, so, you know, my role is to capture some data and send it to someone you know, maybe provide a little bit of insight into the data, but that isn't an analyst. And I think that disconnect has also kind of helped to perpetuate this this problem is that, you know, we've called people analysts that aren't analysts. And by, and when we do that, we, we don't give them the proper training and support uh, for, mm. for that role. 
So, so you definitely have great points on, on experience and I, I've seen some of that happen and I don't think I've seen this happen as often as you have, but I have had some conversations around this topic in general. It seems like the, the common thread when I have seen it happen is it's almost a form of procrastination, right? Cause if you think about procrastination in general, like I've read articles where the people that kind of run around the office, like I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy are actually that they're procrastinating. They're constantly trying to find busy work because there's some kind of big task. And they're, and, the, and they're avoiding because of, I think, fear. Mm-hmm. I think that plays into it. So, well. yeah, that's what I wanted to get into is like, how, how much do you think procrastination and fear play into it? And so like they're, they're constantly finding reasons of not moving forward. You know, it's off by one and a half percent. It's off by a solid 4%. We can explain that, but, um, you know, we, we, we just don't want to move forward. I need that will on the podcast soon. He really wants to, to jump in here. Bring him uh, on. Um, <laughs> I think, I think more often than we would care to admit. Um, and I don't think this is specific to analysts. I think we see this in a lot of job functions where, where people get into roles where there's a lack of comfort in their ability and I think for far too many people, the default place to go is defense. I have to defend against being exposed as a fraud. And a lot of this, and especially in tech, a lot of us suffer from, you know, that, that we're, uh, what's, what's the word? Imposter really, syndrome. Yeah. There's a really good tweet by Ben Gaines. I'll have to link it up about imposter syndrome. We, we kind of feel like imposters. And so that kind of plays into it. And, you know, a lot of people go to that place of being defensive and um, having to have the data perfect, I think, is a form of defense. Um, And oftentimes it's because people feel, analysts feel like they're not, competence too harsh, but they're, they're not, you know, they're not at the level that they expect or what you know, maybe actually expected of them. And so if, if I can fall back on, well, the data was not perfect, then it's not me, right? It's not my fault. It's, it's deflected to someone else's fault. So I think the procrastination is less about just not wanting to do it and more of a defense mechanism that there's a lot of fear there. And I think that that, not, that needs to be um, addressed. And the reality is, is that all of us are in positions that we don't know exactly what we're doing we're all trying to kind of figure it out as we go and we can either choose to be defensive about it and not move forward and create a lot of walls or we can choose to be open and transparent about it and say i don't know help me i want to understand um it's hard for me to see the defensive side because i'm very much the other the other way my my first job out of college i i asked so many questions i'm sure i drove everyone crazy but it's like i don't know i got thrown into something i'd never connected to an Oracle database before. I had never written PLSQL before. I had never done any of this stuff. And so I'm like, I don't know, who's going to help me? Who's going to help me? Someone help me. (laughs) Um, And I ended up learning a ton because I was open to doing that. And I let down my guard, but I worked with lots of people who are the exact opposite. And I've watched the trajectory of their careers and they've stayed pretty flat. And it's sad, you know, it's stayed flat because they, they can't get help. They can't progress because they're they're constantly p- playing defense because they're scared to open up that that they don't know. And and I think that plays right into this conversation that oftentimes that not knowing comes across as, ooh, I've got an out because the data is not perfect. So when you've come across these kinds of situations, 
you know, how, uh, what's the approach that you you've taken? Um, you know, say it is one of these things where the actually l- let's go with two scenarios. One where it's the person doesn't know is scared to ask. They, 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 they don't want to f- uh, appear uh, as weak. So you, you kind of identify that's the situation. Then the second scenario is, is you've got maybe someone who's more of a braggart. They're in over their head. And so they're going to find every reason to, to attack um, because they don't want to be, be found out. So I think you have two different types of personalities there, two different types of situations. You know, um, I mean, I, I, I think I've seen, I've definitely seen the latter. What, what, what kind of approaches would you take? No, it's a really good question. Um, so overall, I, I like to approach those situations with one of empathy and understanding, seeking to understand, um, because I've learned the hard way, specifically with the last scenario where it's kind of, you know, the bragger and putting up walls. You know, we've all we've all worked with someone that, again, I think that's a defense mechanism, right? If I put out something strong and I'm going to brag about how amazing I am and I'm going to, you know, put out there how tough I am, oftentimes it's they're the opposite. They're they're weak. They're scared. Um, but in the past, I've fought that with aggression. I've you know hit that with aggression, and that never works. That just causes them to dig in deeper. So you know I've learned to be a bit more empathetic um, and and look at them as kind of like almost like a scared child. You know, it's like how would I treat a, a child that was in a situation where they re- were really scared? Would I get up in their grill and yell at them and use a lot of force? I hope not. Right? I hope I'd be a little bit softer and more empathetic and seek to understand like you know, what's happening here? How can I help you? I would say that the former is much easier to deal with. Um, I have a much higher success rate of helping them because they're instantly open to it. And I just need to make them feel safe and comfortable and say, look, let's, let's figure out how to get you where you, you want to be. It's the same message with the second group. You need to make them feel safe and comfortable and even more so because they feel like everyone is there to attack them, um, especially as an outside consultant where you have a ton more expertise and experience than them. They see you as a threat. And so trying to kind of help them understand that I'm your partner. I'm here to make you successful. I'm not a threat to you. I'm not here to take your job. I don't want your job. You know, let me help you. Um, Unfortunately, I think it only works about, I've only been successful probably 50% of the time with that group. It's just a a harder group to, to attack. And I'm trying, I'm learning, I'm trying to use new techniques and skills, but I think that one takes a lot more psychological understanding to help them understand that they are safe. Um, and if you can make them feel safe, you can be really successful, but, but man, it's hard. So as part of that and going back to how we started this off, cause I was saying like, there, there's a difference between imperfect data and error prone and gap filled data. Um, and we're not talking about the latter. We're talking about the former. Um, how do you help someone understand the difference between the two? Because to me, and maybe it's part of that defense mechanism, maybe it's just not understanding when there is something wrong with it. Well, not even something wrong when there's a misunderstanding with the data, it's not showing me what I expected it to see, you know, what what I expected to see. Um, there's gotta be something wrong. There's, there's a gap somewhere. There's an error somewhere. 
how do you help someone identify the difference between a misunderstanding in the data, just imperfect data, but the data is perfect enough to make decisions and something that is actually genuinely wrong? No, another another great question. And I think um, even in both scenarios, there's still option for analysis, right? Just because mm -hmm. one piece of the data is wrong doesn't mean we have to throw out everything. Um, so I think it's important to to recognize that. Um, but I think to your first point, it's a it's a great opportunity to have the discussion around the importance of documentation and communication. Because I think what you're talking about, we see also often where we have a separation between MarTech technical implementation and architecture and data consumption by an analyst. And if we haven't had a podcast about this, we should at least write some blog posts about it. Um, the power you have as a MarTech architect and implementer is scary. You've got so much power because the decisions you make as an implementer, because the power of these SaaS solutions is in all this pre-processing and your choices of an implementer directly impact that processing, you've got so much amazing power. And I think a lot of MarTech, MarTech implementers and architects don't really realize how much power they have and don't really realize that the choices they're making are having a direct impact on the, the analyst. And so because of that, there's no communication, right? And so I may, as an analyst, send across to the fence, hey, MarTech developer, I want you to capture when this happens, when X happens. That already opens it up to a lot of interpretation. So they go and implement X and the decisions they make on how to define that, when and where to implement it, directly impact how I'm gonna analyze it. But that feedback loop is never closed. So I made an assumption when I threw it over the fence I assume when it came back over, they implemented it to the blueprint in my mind. And now all of a sudden, I'm trying to analyze imperfect data. The data's not imperfect, right? Just someone else made a decision to implement it differently than I had thought in my head. So mm -hmm. closing that feedback loop and clearly articulating to your implementation team what the expected outcome is and having an implementation team that is invested enough to understand that the decisions they are making directly impact how the analysis takes place and then closing the loop on all of those transactions is critical to addressing that problem. And I think it happens so rarely, mm -hmm. so rare. Yeah, you're right. This is totally a blog post or series of blog posts because it's something I'm going through right now with, with, with a client and some of the... Uh, the marketing team. It's the, we need to implement this tag. We get on the call. I ask questions. I get details. I'm like, okay, this is the information I need to proceed. And then like bits and pieces come in and piecemeal. I'm like still missing these specific items or these specific areas. And then another email comes back with like screenshots of the UI. And I'm like, no, still not like, let's get back on the phone. Um, I need you to connect me with these people because that's still not enough. So, yeah, I think that that's a whole other thing. And it's looking from both perspectives. You know, I'm I'm the implementer. How do I communicate what I need as well as I'm the analyst? How do I communicate clearly what I need? Yeah. So. And, and I think as an analyst, ultimately, you are the consumer of the data. Um, and I think you need to have the responsibility. So if you're an analyst and this is, if this is ringing a bell and you're sitting here nodding your head saying, yep, yep. I face this every day. 
you should turn the finger in and point at yourself because if you're seeing this disconnect between what the what data you're getting based on the decisions the martech team is making is out of line with what you want you've got to take responsibility for that you're the consumer of the data and if it's coming back and you're constantly raising your hand saying i can't do this analysis because the data isn't like i want it then most you've got to shoulder most of the blame as the analyst because it's your role if you own analytics within your organization to make sure that you are clearly articulating the needs to your martech team and you're not just tossing it over the fence and walking away you have to hand it off in a clearly articulated way about what you want to see as an output and then you have to shepherd that process along not micromanage them not telling them what to do but you have to be an active participant in that process and that's not happening either right mm -hmm. so many times and and a lot of times it's not the uh the fault of the analyst it's i think i put a lot of the blame on higher up in the organization and underfunding the teams you know, we're asking analysts to do an awful lot by themselves. And so if I'm now saying, well, if they're going to their boss and saying, well, Jason is saying, I also have to make sure these guys do it right. I can't do all this. I don't have the time. It's right. They don't. So I think, I think a lot of this blame comes down to understaffing of, of organizations where higher up, they're just not putting the money into people that it, it really needs to make these things go. Yes. Very, very true. So I'd also, I'd also go back and kind of take the scenario. So we, we took it from an analyst perspective and you asked the question, um, you know, how would you address if an analyst came to you and said the data is not perfect? I, you know, I think it's also worth um, spending a few minutes on what if that's an executive sponsor that's coming back to you and saying, you know, this sucks. Google Analytics sucks. Data is not working. You know, um, Adobe Analytics sucks. We're not, we're not aligning 100% to our backend system. Um, I think it's a different approach that, that you take with, with those folks. Um, and, and with them, I think it's fair to take a much firmer stance, um, and, and understand like what, where's the ego, where's the attitude here? Because mm -hmm. oftentimes, yeah, why, why are you saying this? Because obviously your company thought that it was a good decision to bring this in. You've spent a considerable amount of money in deploying it, putting a team in place to use it. Um, do you have an ax to grind against Adobe? Do you hate Google? Um, is there a, an incumbent that you would rather have? And this is playing, like, let's understand what's really happening here because, you know, as oftentimes as an executive sponsor, they're not using the data. Um, and more often than not, it's some kind of ego personal problem that they have and, and trying to address it at a technical level. So going back to the auto parts thing, I truly believe that there was some kind of other ego in play there and we spent four months at a technical level saying this is how we can get a real they didn't care they don't care about the technical details there was something deeper we needed to undercover uncover there you mm -hmm. know where it's like oh did you come from a web trend shop and now you're at an adobe or an omniture shop and you're mad about it like help me understand what the pressures are so we can address the right things and again from an executive level i think it's much fairer to be more firm and upfront with them. You don't need to be quite as, as soft and empathetic with them. And you bring up a great point because you're, you know, you were talking earlier about, you know, the analysts who are, you know, the more recent analysts in the industry don't remember or weren't a part of the days when you had to pull your own da data, just like you were talking about. I think one of the things that's also come about with the, the way data has become available because of now Adobe Analytics, Google Analytics, 
is you've created, I don't want to use the word fanboys because that, that that's demeaning, but um, fans uh, of yeah, various tools, sure. you know, sure. like I, you know, you know, like for, you know, not me specifically, but you know, you have someone saying like, I'm, I'm a Google person. I want the Google ecosystem here, or I'm an Adobe person. I've always used Adobe. That's my weapon of choice. And anything that isn't Adobe, um, I don't want it, whether that's because I don't understand it and don't want the time to understand it. Or, um, I have longtime friends over there because of previous Adobe shops I've been a part of. This is this is the tool I want. I, I think that that is definitely a driving factor. Oh, by by no <laughs> me, by no question that that happens <laughs> a lot at, at the executive level, and and I think it's okay to ad- admit, um, you know, and especially if you're in services and you want to be a hey, we're an Adobe shopper. There are lots of uh, shops that are really really good at doing GA, and they're very forthcoming, saying that's all we do. We think it's the best. And I think that's completely fine. Mm-hmm. What I have a problem with is executives taking that and not being open-minded about what an incumbent can do, uh, because I think they oftentimes throw um, companies years back in their maturity because they're uncomfortable and their ego won't allow them to be uncomfortable. We, you know, unfortunately, we've seen this with companies, companies that we're not currently working with, but we've seen it where uh, a long time solution had been in place the 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 company was getting tremendous value a change in executive leadership happens they come in and I'm like well i know you guys are using x but in all my past jobs i use y so we're using y like mm-hmm. well how come how why is that the case you haven't been here long enough to vet it out um is it just because you're uncomfortable with x and and you haven't seen it um if you've if you've run both and you have a, a a valid point, let's vet that out. But all too often, it's one of ego where they feel threatened because they've never used the solution before, and without even putting the proper time into evaluating the loss of what their decision is going to make, they make an executive unilateral decision to to rip it out. And I think that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's fine to be a fanboy. It's fine to be a, aligned with a certain brand, but. As an executive, you have a, a responsibility to the company to to make decisions um, that are financially smart. And I think in a lot of cases, you have a lot of executives making some really, really dumb decisions. Mm-hmm. Or they, they either tear it down, like you've said, and I want to come back to that in a second, or what I've also I've seen in a couple of cases, they try to engineer the incumbent to work like the way the system that they're used to. <laughs> so oh, then you've you're making got, my head hurt already. I can't take it. I'm gonna th- <laughs> you've got this bastardized system that is, is in no way right. So then the problem is, is, yep, I told you the incumbent sucks. We do, we need to bring in this one. We had a, we worked with a company that was um, major, major snowplow fanboys. And someone in the organization made the decision to buy, um, make a really big investment in the Adobe Experience Cloud. And they tried and tried and tried with all their might to make Adobe operate like snowplow. And then they threw their hands up in the air and they said, Adobe sucks. I'm like, if you guys just want to use snowplow, just use snowplow. Why are you trying to make this into that? Um, you're, you're right. And that those scenarios, 
man, they make me sick to my stomach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and it happens. And it's unfortunate um, because if you want to just use Snowplow, if you want to just use Adobe Analytics, make that decision. But don't run through these hoops and play these games. It it wastes so many people's times. And not only that, it's unfortunate that people are collateral damage. People get fired. People quit because it becomes a toxic environment. So this isn't just about wasting time and wasting money. You're impacting people's lives by playing these games. Like if if you don't like it, just don't use it. I mean, you're going to, you may be making a bad financial decision, but don't pull other people into your madness. And this is exactly what you, Todd Shaman, and I have talked about is why we feel at times the industry doesn't move forward. We, we constantly go in cycles and talking about the same stuff over and over and over again. It, you have people that, that move that, that, that come in and tear down something that works perfectly fine to put their fingerprints on something or to build their own thing so that two years goes by and the company is no further along than where they were when the person joined. Yeah, that's right. And we, we, we've seen that happen far too many times um, where people come in, they, they don't want to give any respect to the incumbent because they didn't do it. So they tear it down. They either wholly replace platforms or re-architect. Um, and they do that over a one to two year period. And then guess what? Oh, I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. And then we repeat. And so it's 2019 and we're sitting here scratching our heads wondering why we're having the exact same conversations we had back in 2006. Well, it's because we're not willing to stand on the shoulders of giants. If we're not willing to stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and built upward, we're constantly going back to bedrock and starting from scratch. No wonder why we're not moving forward at a fast pace. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have to make a mental shift to be able to put our ego in check a little bit and say, I don't need to start from the, the ground floor. I can take what those have built before me and I can make it even better. To me, mm-hmm. that's that's the path. That feels way more satisfying. But you got to put your ego in check that this isn't all mine. I didn't start with a blank camera. I have to, you know, trash everything and redo it in my own image. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get anywhere as an industry if we keep doing that. Agreed. And then using excuses like the data is imperfect or 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 whatnot. Yeah, we're not. It's a scapegoat. This this yes. whole discussion about data being not perfect is a scapegoat and it's an excuse to make bad decisions it's an excuse to hide our fears and we need to we need to address it at two levels one we need to be making smart decisions to be making our data better and better but fully accept that it's never going to be perfect and two and really most importantly we need to address the underlying issues of why we're latching on to imperfect data what are we what are we covering up for and mm-hmm. let's address those issues because that's going to make us better people. That's going to make me a more valuable employee. And ultimately, that's going to make the business um, more valuable as as well. Mm-hmm. But those are tough conversations to have. Oh, yeah, definitely not easy. And that's we should probably have a follow up episode on that, like how to dig into to some of those things. But uh, that is exactly the conclusion I was hoping to get to is to, to point out that, you know, data is never going to be perfect. It but it doesn't mean it will it should stop you from either moving forward or should be used as a reason to tear down and rebuild. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So, man, I, you know, I didn't think we were going to get to some of those, those talking points, but I'm really glad that they came out um, because this could have gone so many different ways, but I think that we, um, we hit on some really, really important topics. Um, And honestly, I hope ones that I hope those that are listening will take and run with, we can't solve this problem on our own. It's a huge industry-wide problem. And Hopefully we can plant a seed and others will take that seed um, and help bring it forward because this is going to take a monumental shift in, in how we perceive things to make a measurable difference. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So in the new year, let's look to get a couple of those conversations on. And one, I think, yeah, it'd be great to have Evan on to talk about that from a psychological perspective of like, you know, how, like, what's at the root cause for people to do that and how can you address it? But I'd like to see if we can't get a client on yeah. um, ones that we know that are working again, not error prone data, but imperfect data. They're still making decisions. They're still moving forward. Um, and they're they're using that to inform their executive team. Let's see if we can't get uh, a guest or two on to talk about. That. Yeah, let's do it. And speaking of guests, did you see this morning we got another email um, where someone wants to be a guest on the podcast? No, I did not did see that included on that. Uh, I did not see that. Okay, well, I will have to forward that to you. Uh, so we're getting we're getting requests of want, people wanting to be on the podcast, which I love. And I would just say, if you're listening and you have someone that you think would be a great guest, um, even if they're not some popular guest that have been on other podcasts before, please reach out and let us know. We love talking to interesting people, and we cover all sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. So um, maybe they're back. Maybe they have a PhD in psychology. Maybe they're an auto, they design car. I don't care. We want to talk to lots of interesting people on this, this podcast. So if you're listening, you have someone that may be an interesting guest, hit us up. You know, we're, we're always keeping a mind out for, for interesting people, um, to, to come on and chat with us. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely send that over. I'd love to, to see who, uh, who reached out. Yeah. Forward it over to you. Cool. cool so cool. we'll go ahead and, uh, wrap up for now. And, um, this is going to be our last fresh episode before the new year. We'll have uh, like two weeks of, of reruns coming up and then we'll be back uh, at the beginning of January. Good stuff. I'm excited for the, the new year and new episodes. Yep. We, we got some good ones coming in January. Cool. All right, man. Thank you. Uh, All right. right. Good job. All, All right. right bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.